0: Uh, So we're looking at Matthew chapter 18, and we'll be reading from verses 18, or from 15 to 20 today. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a tax collector or Gentile. Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or more agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Well, years ago, my wife and I were looking for a home to live in, and we found this house out in the country, really small house, I think it was like two bedrooms, um, very reasonable, had a really... You know, pretty small yard, um, but the thing that was interesting about this house was it was surrounded by cornfields. And why I surround, say surrounded by cornfields, it's like you just built a house right in the middle of the cornfields. There's cornfields left, right, back, surrounding this house. Really small backyard. And I thought it was kind of cool that you're you know, out in the country with these cornfields, and then I'm thinking to myself, like, what about like, when the farmer sprays pesticides? And, like, it's basically my backyard. Um, is the, pest, are the pesticides going to get into my home? You know, especially if they take, like, you know, one of those airplanes and, and spray one of those pesticide, you know, pesticide airplanes. It's going to be basically on my house. And so, like, I'm thinking, is this a good idea or not? And so it, I was really drawn to this house because, you know, it was out in the country in the cornfield, but it was also concerning to me. So I thought I'd do a little bit of research. And I found the farmer who owned the field, and I gave him a call. Uh, and I explained to the person who, who, who I was. I was interested in this house. And I just asked them, like, I was just wondering, do you guys, like, spray, you know, the fields there? And I was expecting, I had this image of, like, this kind old farmer that they were just going to kind of put my fears to rest. Say, oh, you know, we're really careful about it. Uh, it's not something you have to worry about. We just spray once a year. Don't worry about it. And and then instead, I got a different response. It was a lady who answered the phone, and and she said, how about you scram? I was like, what? She's like, well, it's none of your business, and I don't have to tell you what I'm spraying on my field. Like, okay, have a nice day. (laughs) So ultimately, we decided not to go for that house. But I don't know if you've ever had a situation in your life where someone has told you, hey, it's none of your business, or maybe you've told someone else that. Maybe you've told someone else, hey, it's none of your business. Or maybe you put it more politely like, I, I, I just don't want to talk about it right now. Because we felt like someone who was just kind of prying into something that was ours. Uh, privacy today is kind of a buzzword. It's something that a lot of us, myself included, are concerned about, especially when it comes to digital privacy um, and kind of our digital footprint. I remember a couple years ago, I was looking up something for, on Sam's Club. And I happened to look up the address for Sam's Club for some reason. And, and I saw on the Google page, just under uh, the address, it said, you visited here and then it had a date. It's like, that's weird. And then I go and I look in my Google account and I, and I noticed that it had a record of every time I had visited Sam's Club for the last like six months. Each day, each time that I had visited Sam's Club, I'm like, that's kind of creepy. Didn't know that was happening. And, and we always talk about, like, are, are the phones listening to you? And, uh, you know, it seems like it. I don't know if it's true or not. But I remember the other day I was talking to someone who was uh, just got new cell service with Mint Mobile. And literally, like, a minute later, I opened my phone and I got an advertisement for Mint Mobile. And I hadn't seen those advertisements before. So, you know, we are always talking about privacy in our culture, and uh, we don't want people knowing what we're doing sometimes. Even if we're not doing anything wrong, we want some measure of privacy, that we want to have our private lives that, that people aren't prying into. And I think that there's been kind of a fundamental shift that we've seen in the last about 30 years when it comes to privacy. If you go back about 30 years to 1995, Then President Bill Clinton was having an affair with young intern named Monica Lewinsky. And that started to come out in 1997, 1998. And it was shocking to Americans um, because people thought, well, he's the leader of the free world. He should be an example to everyone. And a sizable minority wanted him to be removed from office. And so he ended up being impeached by the House of Representatives and then acquitted by uh, the Senate. And I think what this kind of ushered in, and again, none of this is about politics, but what this ushered in was this era of of, of our private life being separated from our public life. That you can be a good leader even if your private life is kind of falling apart. See, what happened during this whole inquiry and impeachment proceedings, Bill Clinton's support actually went up significantly. It didn't go down. Before it started in in, uh, 1997, well, before it came out, he had about 55% of people who said that he was doing a good job as president. Uh, During the height of the impeachment proceedings, that number jumped up to 71%. And then after it was all over, it dipped down to about 62%. So his net approval went up after this scandal in his private life. Ironically, right as that affair was being brought to light, there was a book published called The Art of the Comeback by Donald Trump, and he wrote these words. He said, if I told the real stories of my experience with, experiences with women, often seemingly very happily married and important women, this book would be a guaranteed bestseller. And of course, in 2016, Americans set Trump's private life aside and made him president. Again, I'm not making any political statement. I'm just saying that there was a shift from you know private and public matter to only the public persona matters. And, and this, this happens, you know, whether you're Democrat, Republican, or independent. It's like if you're a good leader, if you have the charisma, that's all that matters. Doesn't matter who you are on the inside. And, and I think we've reached a point in our culture, if, if the whole Clinton, Lewinsky thing happened today, I don't think anyone would really care. You know, people might be interested in, like, oh, it's an interesting story, it's a gossipy story. But like, if it was consensual, that people would just, well, well, it was consensual. It's you know his life, it's private thing. You know who are we to 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 pry into that? It's not my business. And so many people in our culture hold this view that there's my public life and there's my private life, and the only thing that anyone can comment on is my public life. If I'm hurting someone else, then that's the only time that anyone can comment on my private life. And I think this belief has affected the church as well. So you've seen a number of, you know, big-name church pastors, charismatic leaders that have ended up falling into sin. And sometimes, in some of those cases, you know, maybe they just, you know, fell into temptation and stumbled. But in other cases, you know, the warning signs were there. The warning signs were there. Maybe they were really oppressive to people, or maybe they just didn't treat people right. Or maybe there were signs that some things were going on. But they were really good leaders, they could talk really well. They're really charismatic. And, and so people are like, well, he, he's a good leader. He's got a following. You know, something must be going well with him. And, and so it, sometimes churches overlook the private life, and sometimes people's um, charisma doesn't match their character. Other times people will say, well, the Bible says not to judge, and so God is my only judge. I'm only responsible to him. I don't care what anyone else does. doesn't matter what other people say about me. And, of course, there's positives there. There's some truth to that and that, you know, we all ultimately are responsible to God. He's, he's our judge. We're not responsible to other people. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 and Jesus as well talks about the interconnectedness of the body of Christ. And we don't just live to ourselves. Of course, we're ultimately responsible to God, not to someone else. But what we do affects other people. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the image of the body. The church is the body of Christ. And in that passage, he talks about how each part of the body is important. You know, the hand needs the foot, needs the eye. They all work together, and one can't operate without the other. And I think by implication, the same thing is true. If one part of the body is sick, that sickness is going to impact the rest of the body. And, And what that means is that my sin affects you. Your sin affects me. Because if we're we're not following after Christ together, that sin is going to affect our lives because we're interconnected. Ultimately, God is our judge, but of course we are connected as God's people. And the passage that we're looking at today talks about this interconnectedness of God's people. And depending on what translation of the Bible you have, it might say something a little bit different. Um, For example, the ESV says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The NIV says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. The New American Standard Bible says this, now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now the fundamental difference between the versions is whether it's if your brother sins or if your brother sins against you. So there's a difference there. I mean and and the meaning is affected. So if it's if my brother sins against me that's about me. Like if I have this personal thing that someone has wronged me and I want to go and make it right. I want to go fix the situation. If someone's done something wrong to me then I need to go fix it. So that's if it's if you if, if your brother sins against you if it's if your brother sins then it might not necessarily affect me it might not be that someone did something wrong to me it might be that they have some sin in their life that's harming them somewhat in some way and that we need to be involved in that process so first of all why is there a difference between the versions why is there a difference between NIV ESV New American standard Bible um, this is a little bit more information than you probably bargained for. Some of us are probably not that interested in it, uh, but I think it's important to understand, it, you know, where we get it from. Um, so the Bible, the New Testament, was written primarily in Greek. The, the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew, and we think about translating the Bible from uh, talking about the New Testament from the Greek uh, into English. And sometimes we have this idea, like that we just had like this manuscript, and then we just, you know, people just translate it over. Well, uh, we don't actually have the original autographs, so to speak. So we don't have the pen and paper that Matthew used to write the book of, the book of Matthew. But we actually have something better than that. So it's say that we only had one manuscript. We had the copy of, of that you know, Matthew wrote by hand. Now, if there's only one copy, what could people say? They could say, well, how do we know it's accurate? How do we know it's original? You know, if, if you were to write a book and just put it out somewhere on, you know, publish it, how would anyone know if you actually wrote that or not? How would anyone know if it was actually your words or not? So what we have when it comes to the New Testament is we have thousands of manuscripts that attest to the accuracy of what Matthew said. We don't have just one manuscript because the manuscripts were, you know, thousands of years old. We have thousands of different manuscripts. And so when you look at those manuscripts, there's an incredible degree of accuracy. And scribes would painstakingly work to make sure that they accurately translated the Bible so that people would have a record of what God said. But the good news is we also have, you know, we have those thousand that we can kind of uh, compare against one another. And again, they're remarkably accurate. There's remarkable accuracy. And, you know, I think about, you know, I've been preaching for about 10 years here now and it's not something I even brought up. I may have touched on it a couple times, but it's not something that it's a big issue. It's something that, you know, generally it's just little things that a scribe may have forgotten a, a um, punctuation or may have forgotten uh, a certain word or maybe uh, maybe tried to explain something in a certain way. So it's not a huge issue. It often doesn't affect the 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 way that the text is translated or the way that the text is understood. But sometimes there were differences. And again, sometimes it's, you know, maybe the the scribe happened to be a little bit sleepy and copied an extra sentence or forgot something or, or whatnot. And again, usually you can tell those things. And, and there's a couple different principles that um, this, this this um Discipline, it's called textual criticism, kind of comparing the different texts of the Bible, the different manuscripts. There's a few different principles that kind of govern how we understand um, the text. And what we're looking for is the, what Jesus actually said or what the, the what is most authentic. And, and the one principle that is often used at the, is that the shorter reading is generally to be preferred. Um, sometimes kind of overzealous scholars, what they would do, was as they were copying the Bible, there might be something that maybe was a little bit unclear, or maybe could be taken two different ways. And rather than just kind of leaving that as it was, they would try to help, and they would try to explain what it meant. And sometimes maybe they were right, sometimes maybe they were wrong. For example, if I were to say to, maybe I was to tell someone who wasn't a Bills fan, if I was to say, hey, the Bills... That that game yesterday, it was terrible. If I was to say that, and imagine the person that I told it to went and told someone else, hey, Pastor Matt said that the Bills game was terrible. The Bills lost. They looked horrible. They're not going anywhere this year. It's just a lost cause. Now, maybe that's true. But I didn't say that. I said it was a terrible game. Now, what did I mean by that? I could have meant a lot of different things. I could have meant it was terrible because they lost. Uh, I could have meant it was terrible because maybe we had some injuries, or I could have said, well, it was terrible, but you know, maybe we won, but we looked bad. Maybe I, I said it was terrible because it was a, not a very interesting game to watch. And so I could say it's terrible, and it could mean a couple different things. And so it wouldn't be right for someone to say, oh, they're not go- Matt, Pastor Matt says it's, they're not going anywhere. They're terrible. They lost the game. I didn't say that. And so in the same way, there were, sometimes, sometimes scribes would add a little bit too much and they would try to clarify. And it, a lot of times they were right in what they were clarifying, but wasn't the actual text. And so shorter readings are generally to be preferred. And so I take uh, this passage, I'm gonna, I'll follow the New American Standard Version in saying when your brother sins rather than when your brother sins against you. I think this also makes more sense in the context of the passage that we're looking at and what Jesus is talking about. And also there was another uh, possible confusion that I'm not going to go into that may have led uh, scholars to add against you. So that's a lot of things you probably weren't interested in, but I thought it was helpful to try to get there to understand why we're talking about it in this way. Uh, So I think that in this passage, we see some instructions for how to deal with sin in the body of Christ. How do we deal with a situation where someone is doing something um, that maybe we feel like we need to, to step in and say something? or act in some way. And I think Jesus gives us a few principles here. And the first principle he gives us is that when we're looking at someone else's sin, the motivation for correction needs to be love. It has to be love. It says if your brother or sister sins, what is sin? Now we think about sin, and sin we think about as like doing something bad, like you're a bad person if you sin, or you know you're doing you're breaking some arbitrary law or even God's law. Now, you know sin is breaking God's law, but it's also more than that. Sin is also something that unravels who we are. It unravels everything good in our lives. And so God tells us certain things that we should and shouldn't do, not because he wants to make our lives miserable, but he tells us these things because he wants our lives to be full. He wants us to find joy in him. And so Sin is something that unravels joy, unravels that which is good. But sometimes we don't think of it like that. We think of it as just kind of breaking an arbitrary rule or law. So let's say that I'm at a restaurant and I'm having dinner and you happen to see me in a restaurant and I'm eating this ginormous cheeseburger and this big heaping plate of french fries. Now, that's probably not a good thing to do. It's probably not a healthy thing to do. It's not the best choice I could make. I could eat something healthier. But it wouldn't be inappropriate for you to come up to me and say, hey, you're eating a cheeseburger again. I mean, is that really the best choice? Wouldn't it be a very nice thing to do. But imagine that I sat down for dinner, and instead of having a cheeseburger and french fries, I had a box of decon, rat poison. And I put it in a bowl, and I've got a spoon, and I'm about to eat that rat poison. There would be nothing that would be too great to try to stop me from doing that. I mean, who, who knows why I, I'm doing that? I mean, maybe I thought it was something else. Maybe I didn't, don't realize that it's rat poison. Maybe I'm having a mental health crisis. You don't know why I'm doing it, but you should do everything in your power to stop me from doing that because if I eat it, I'm going to die. And sometimes when it comes to sin in the body of Christ, we think of it as just like, oh, being bad or breaking a rule or doing something that, you know, God doesn't want us to do. And it is that, but it's more than that. It's something that destroys us. And so when we do see somebody else in the body of Christ that we have a relationship with, where we have that kind of influence that we, you know, that credibility, so to speak, and we see someone doing something that's destroying them, out of love, we should act on that. Because we don't want to see our brother or sister be destroyed. We look at this person not like this person is being bad and I need to go and set them straight and show them the right way. It's like my brother or my sister, they are sick. They are in need. And, And I can't make choices for them, but I need to pray for them and I need to do everything that I can to help them to try to get out of this. So we approach the erring sister or brother, not as a judge pointing out someone's flaws, but with the eyes of, the doc, of a doctor applying the salve of the gospel to the heart. Jesus has just talked about the man who has a hundred sheep, and he leaves the 99 to go and seek the one who is lost. Back in Genesis, Cain murders his brother Abel, and God asks him, where's your brother? And how, what does Cain say? He says, I'm my brother's keeper. Now question, are we our brother's keeper? Are we our sister's keeper? The answer is yes, we are. Got it. That's part of what it means to love those around us, that we keep our brother or sister from danger, that we do everything that we can. We can't make decisions for them, but we do everything that we can to try to support them, encourage them. That's part of the story of the prodigal son, that you know, the older brother should have been seeking the younger brother. He should have been doing everything that he could to make sure his younger brother came home, but instead he's putting obstacles in the way of the younger brother. And that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees put obstacles in the way of sinners and tax collectors so that they couldn't come to God. So that it was, you know, they were putting burdens on them. They were seeking their own righteousness. And they should have been helping those who were sick, the sinners, tax collectors, and everyone else who was in need. And as believers in Jesus, we exist for one another. And if another person in the body of Christ is sick, we have a responsibility to do everything that we can to make them healthy again. But if we're going to do it, our motivation, it has to be love. Because if it's not love, we're going to lose our credibility. We're going to fall into sin ourselves. And so if it's not love, we need to just hold our tongue, worry about ourselves. But if it is love, sometimes there's situations where maybe we need to step in and say something or support a brother or sister who's struggling. So I think Jesus says, first, the, the motivation for correction must be love. The second, the, the qualification for correction must be authenticity. In Matthew 7, 1-5, to 5, Jesus says, Judge not, that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eyes, but, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, sometimes people will read this passage and say, well, you know, we're not to judge, we're not to have any value statements, that I should just mind my own business, and I'll do what I want to do, and my, my neighbor can do what my neighbor wants to do. And I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I think he's, he's warning against being a fault finder, that we shouldn't be looking primarily at other people's sin rather than our own. That our first inclination should not be like, what is that other person doing? It's, what am I doing that's not honoring to Christ? What am I doing that's maybe causing someone else to struggle? And so if we're going to to, to um, lovingly help our brother or sister, we need to do business uh, with God ourselves. We need to authentically deal with the sin that's in our own heart first. And when, again, when we offer correction, we offer correction not as a judge not as someone who's better but as a fellow singer, sinner who's also dealt with that sin in our hearts. And again, if we don't do that, if our focus is on somebody else, then we're going to lose credibility with that person. We're going to be seen as a hypocrite because that's what we are. And also, we might fall into sin ourselves. Cuz maybe our brother or sister is doing something that's wrong, and maybe as we try to intervene in that situation, our heart's going to be filled with pride. And maybe our pride is going to be even greater than the sin that our brother or sister is engaged in. And so we need to be careful that that qualification, that we are honestly doing business with God, that we're trying to serve God with our whole heart, that we, we're we not perfect, of course, but that we're authentically trying to love and obey God. And along the lines of that as well, we need to be sure if we're going to, to take the step to say something to someone else or to help someone else in some way who's struggling with sin, we need to be careful that it's actually sin. Like, is it actually something that they're doing that is against what God has said, or is it something that we prefer? Is it our preference? Because other people don't have to conform to our preferences. It's not good that other people have to conform to our preference. If it's something that's a preference, if it's not something clearly in Scripture, that's their business. Don't mess with it. Don't pry into their life. It only affects people in the body of Christ when we have that relationship, and it's something that clearly God has said and something that's harming them. And God's word is the only authority, not our opinion. Galatians 6.1 puts it this way. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So the qualification uh, is authenticity. We must have authenticity if we're going to correct someone else. And finally, we see the method must be the least invasive possible. The method must be least invasive. So if you were, say you had uh, pain in your hand and you went to the doctor and said, I'm really having pain in my hand, in my wrist, I'm not sure what to do about it. Um, you're, the doctor wouldn't take out a saw and say, okay, I'm going to chop off your arm. I mean, that would be one day way of dealing with your pain. If, you, if they chopped off your arm, you'd never have pain in your hand again. That would be dealing with the pain. But, of course, the doctor wouldn't do that because, I mean, it would be painful to chop off your arm. And also, you would lose something really valuable to you. And so you would start with something much, more, uh, l- much less invasive. You know, maybe it's just starting with, like, Advil every six hours. Or maybe it's, you know, starting with just ice and, or heat, applying heat. Or maybe a cortisone shot. Like the last possible thing that you'd want to do is chop off your whole arm because your wrist hurt. And so the doctor starts with the least invasive possible and then moves up if that doesn't work. And the same thing is true in the body of Christ. That's what Jesus outlines here, that when we are involved in correction, when someone sins, and again, this could apply to when someone sins against you. It's a specific application. But when somebody else sins, a brother or sister sins, there's a progression for correction. We want to be... The least harmful, least invasive as possible. And so the first step is that you go to your brother or your sister privately. Share your concerns with them. And that's that's the goal that they would listen, that they would repent. And if that's the case, like there's, there's little harm done. Like people don't need to know about it. The, your neighbor doesn't need to know about it. The church doesn't need to know about it. It's not that big of a deal because, you know, they're doing something that's harmful. You speak the truth in love and they change. And both of you leave there stronger, and maybe even your relationship is stronger because of that. And and just as an aside, for those of us who are believers, and maybe we're on the other end of that, maybe we're not giving correction, we're receiving correction, we need to be people who are open and humble enough to admit that when, when we're wrong. Because, you know, if we don't admit it, sometimes it can progress and get to a point that it's going to cause a lot of harm in our life. But when we keep short accounts with God, and we can deal with it right at the beginning and repent, it minimizes the damage that can be done. Sometimes, however, it doesn't work. Sometimes, you know, maybe the next step that needs to be taken where you maybe bring a couple people with you. And this is not for someone, you know, just to gang up on, uh, on this person. But bringing a couple people with you kind of, Number one, it checks your heart to make sure, like, this is actually an issue. It's not something that I see. It's not my opinion. It's not my preference that I'm trying to impose on someone else. It's something that's really an issue uh, that we need to try to help our brother or sister with. But it also gives credibility to, uh, to you if, if you end up, if, if you are in the right, that it provides support to the person who's in the wrong, saying, like, this isn't just one person, it's it's a couple people here who, who realize, like, this is an issue, this is harming you, and we don't want you to go down this road of being destroyed. We don't want you to experience this pain. And hopefully at that point, they'll turn around. And uh, if that's if that's the case, it's, again, it's not that invasive, it's not that big of a deal. Only a couple people know about it, you know, the person has repented, can move on and in, in, in strengthen the relationship sometimes it doesn't work hopefully it's uh and doesn't happen that much but sometimes it doesn't work and and the next step the the more invasive step is bringing it to the church to the leadership of the church and then having to deal with it on that level which is a lot more invasive um and then jesus says if, if it doesn't work there he says treat them as a gentile or as a tax collector uh, basically, treating them as an outsider. And that's not a, you know, basically, it's not just, you know, trying to ostracize them. It's not punishing them in that same sense. It's trying to show them they need to change. And, and there's sometimes, and again, this is the most invasive thing, you know, imaginable, that it's like chopping off your arm. It's hopefully something that you never, you know, that you'd never get to. But there are certain situations where a person will just be doing something wrong and, like, you know, you've gone to them privately. You've, you know a couple people have gone to them the church has gone you know kind of spoken to them and they just persist and persist and persist and persist and they have no desire to change and there might come, become a time where they just kind of you have to have a conversation with them and it's like we love you we care about you but what you're doing is not helping yourself and being in this body of faith where you're claiming to follow Christ and you're not I mean it's just hurting everybody and so you need to either change or, you know, and, and turn back to God. And, and go, of course, even in that, the goal is not punishment, but restoration of that person. And again, hopefully that would never get to that level, but occasionally it does. So we start with the least invasive means possible. And if we're all doing uh, business with God, if we're authentically trying to follow Christ, then it just stays at that first level, doesn't cause any harm to the body of christ it just stays there and hopefully it never moves on to the next level but if we notice also in this passage there's no mentions explicitly of the church leadership it doesn't say if someone you know does something that's wrong go and tell the pastor about it. it doesn't say that because that would be a big intensification that would be like step three or four and so what that indicates is that we all have a responsibility to care for one another. It's not just the pastor who has that responsibility. All of us have a responsibility to care for one another. James five nineteen to 20 says, My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Howard Hendricks, former uh, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary and chaplain to Dallas Cowboys, um, tells about a man that he knew that was in ministry, and he just made some really terrible decisions, uh, morally just went down the tubes, uh, ended up losing his ministry, losing uh, basically his faith for a while. And then he was restored. He was brought back to fellowship. His ministry was restored And uh, Hendricks was just having a coffee with him one day and just said, hey, I got a question with you. Let me just pick your brain. Like, what do you think we're doing wrong as a church today? And he said this. He said, Howie, when I fell into sin, it was like going down in the surf for the third time. I was looking over at the shore that was filled with believers that I knew, Some, some of whom were crying, isn't that tragic? Some of whom were cursing, saying, you're supposed to know the word of God. Why did you allow that to happen to you? There were some who were wringing their hands saying, what can we do? But there was only one who risked the surf to pull me out while I was going down for the third time. I think the question that this passage leaves us with is, are we willing to go into the waves to fight the surf for our brother or sister in Christ? It, it might be difficult. It might be mean being misunderstood. It might mean temporarily, you know, creating a wound in that relationship. Might mean that maybe we fall into temptation as well. Yet if we can rescue, help rescue one brother or sister who's drowning, is it not worth all of it? Jesus came to save us. Jesus came and and fought the waters of judgment for us. He came to the earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross so that we might have life. He came to seek and to save the lost. And being his sons and daughters, we're to do the same thing. Obviously, we can't save them like Jesus did. But we can encourage our brother or sister. We can pray for our brother and sister when, when appropriate. We can challenge our brother or sister. And as believers in Jesus, we need to do everything that we can to make sure our brother or sister doesn't drown. That we offer them a hand, pull them out of, the, pull them out of those waters so that might, they might experience life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you rescued us when we were drowning, when we had no hope. Lord, as believers in Christ, we want to be people who... First and foremost, love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also we want to be people who authentically love those around us. And Lord, we know that authentically loving those around us doesn't always just mean telling people what they want to hear. doesn't always mean just being kind and being polite. Sometimes it means saying things that are hard. But Lord, help us to have the courage to do that when appropriate, when necessary, if it means saving our brother or sister who's drowning under the weight of sin. Lord, as we do that, Lord, keep our hearts from pride. Help us to authentically do business with you first, to deal with the sin in our own lives so that we can help those around us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.